Welcome to the first episode of the Bulletin from the Borderlands podcast. This episode will feature a few members from the team as we discuss the regions that we've been covering in previous issues, and we also talk about what we're seeing around the world. In this episode, we have Lethal Minds, Alcon S2, S2 Forward, Croton Report, Meridian News, and myself. If you like what you hear in this episode, consider checking out the Bulletin at lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or lethal.minds.journal on Instagram. The bulletin is put out every two weeks, and the next one is set to release at the beginning of the week. So, again, if you like what you hear, consider checking it out. And thank you for all the support, and let's get into the podcast. Hi, guys. This is the Bulletin from the Borderlands team. Uh, This podcast will cover foreign affairs, world news, stuff that's not being covered elsewhere, and provide you with a long view on the world around you that will help you better understand what is happening and what is going to happen to make you better at your professions and safer in the world around you. We're joined by the Lethal, Mind, uh, by Lethal Minds, by S2 Forward, who's on the bulletin team. S2, do you want to have anything to say to the peoples? Hey, uh, yeah, this is uh, S2 Forward. You can find me at uh, Instagram and Twitter at the same name, S2 underscore FWD. I uh, cover Middle East and European news. We've got Analyze edu- Educate with us. Hey guys, uh, Analyze and Educate. You could find me on Twitter, Instagram, at Analyze Educate. No underscores or anything like that. Also, you could find the podcast, Analyze and Educate. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. And yeah. And we're also joined all the way from New Zealand by Alcon S2. Great team, uh, Alcon S2 here. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at allconnors2. Um, I've also got another team member who runs my new Twitter account, uh, and that is at allconintel on Twitter. Um, and I'm also standing up a, uh, a Grey Zone newsletter that I've got coming out weekly. Uh, you can subscribe to that for free uh, at www.theallcongroup.com. Cheers. We're also joined by Croatone Report. Hello? Yep, we can hear you now. Okay, sorry about that. Anyways, hey all, I'm a Crotone Report. I have a podcast called Crotone Report. It's really focusing on like niche corners of the internet or the world and conflicts and zones and whatnot, interviewing individuals who are, say, on the ground and or uh, subject matter experts in some areas talking about geopolitics and conflict and whatnot. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Crotone Report. That's me. And last but definitely not least, we are joined by Meridian News. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, find me on Instagram at meridian.news. Um, I cover a lot of the same stuff that everyone else here does, but try to keep it really informational, informative, as we all do. Uh, kind of changes depending on what I'm finding interesting at the moment. Right now, that's a lot of uh, economics. So uh, looking forward to everything here. Awesome. So that's most of the uh, bullet from the Borderlands team. Again, our, our guys work as independent journalists, intelligence analysts military personnel members. Sometimes we have people, sometimes we don't. S2 is going to lead us off, though. He's been covering mostly the Middle East and Central Asia. And S2, where do you see, what are you getting from the last couple of bulletins? Where do you see us going sort of over the next 18 months? Well, the uh, trajectory of the Middle East has been, I'm sure as anyone's been seeing, a little bit more uh, unstable and more turbulent. 
uh, primarily in Iraq and through outside influencers within the Levant, primarily through Iran and Turkey. So just to make it short uh, and simple, uh, President Erdogan of Turkey has been saying for a while now that he wants to conduct an operation into Syria, uh, targeting the PKK, the Kurdish terrorist group that they've been fighting since the uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, what a lot of people don't uh, know is that they've also been fighting them in Iraq also through the uh, Operation Klawlock. Uh And that's really what I'm going to say about Iraq, but they're also going to fuel tensions within Syria greatly. Uh, and we're also seeing the U.S.-backed Kurdish and Arabic alliance, the Syrian Democratic Forces, slowly align themselves more with the Syrian regime uh, in order to counter any more aggression from Turkey. Uh, in regards to Iraq, they because of the struggle to form an actual official Iraqi government uh, through Muqtad al-Sadr, uh, his coalition to uh, protest uh, within the Green Zone and against the Iranian-backed coalition framework, uh, this struggle to establish a formal government is just going to cause more instability if they uh, don't resolve it anytime soon. And this isn't just like, oh, the government can't make decisions. Uh, there's a good portion of the country right now that has intermittent electricity. They've had a water crisis for some time now. And if uh, on the other end of the spectrum, let's say the Iranian-backed coalition does create a government, uh, it's going to isolate the Sunnis uh, in the country as a whole, uh, much like uh, a few years back with the resurgence of ISIS in 2014. That was because a Shia-dominated government uh, that was backed by Iran uh, was created, uh, isolating the Sunnis, uh, reasserting uh, re a new Sunni terrorist organizations uh, just to fight the Iraqi government. Uh, but this is also going to be on top of civil disputes between uh, lack of facilities like water and uh, electricity. On the other end of the uh, area, uh, what is pretty new, well, not new in a sense, but new as of the past few days you're going to see it on the news is israel and lebanese hezbollah are going at it or at least tensions are rising there now especially with the disputed maritime claims between the the state of lebanon and israel so there's gonna be more heightened tensions awesome and uh that's good i seem to remember we killed a uh or at least tried to kill one of the solders a while ago that seems not to have taken Analyze, educate. Uh, you've been covering a lot of our Asia, Africa. You've sort of came in about an issue ago. You've been covering a lot of things since then. Where do you see your regions going? Yeah, so particularly with the last issue, I did Central Asia as well. And then I did Eurasia a little bit. So the three main things I did was one being the uh, drone strike, CIA drone strike on the leader of Al Qaeda. That's the guy that succeeded Osama bin Laden. His name was Al-Zawahiri. He was killed it, basically in downtown Kabul, like right in the diplomatic uh, quarter, former diplomatic quarter, I guess you can say. And that really highlights the relationship that the Taliban has always had with Al-Qaeda. You know, when we signed this peace deal with them called the Doha Agreement in February 2020, they swore up and down that they would cut ties with them. And that was I clearly BS, and that's even something that we knew when the former government fell. Al-Qaeda officials, I guess you could say, and their families were already moving into Afghanistan. So this is something we've known for the past year. And now we killed Al-Qaeda's leader inside Afghanistan. So complete, uh, obviously a complete violation of the peace agreement. But we're 
probably not going to do anything about that. And I, when I say we, I mean the U.S. Um, but yeah, just highlights the relationship. The second big thing I did was sort of on the Taliban and their relations with the bordering countries and really how the insurgencies that they're fighting against are affecting that, particularly the insurgency that the Islamic State's affiliate in the area, ISKP, is affecting the relations. The Taliban has really been having big issues fighting this insurgency, and ISKP is branching out to other neighboring countries, you know, particularly Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, to not only conduct attacks from Afghan territory, but also um, recruit Uzbeks and Tajiks, whether they be from their ancestral homelands, if you want to call it, or whether they're Afghan nationals, right? The Taliban is a majority Pashtun group, and the Islamic State is taking advantage of that to sort of recruit these ethnic minorities, if you will. And then the third big thing I did was these recent clashes between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Again, in Nagorno-Karabakh, there was an Azeri soldier that got killed, and Azerbaijan responded with a few drone strikes and apparently some small-scale offensives that took a few positions. Um, and that's really all that's happened on that. This isn't unusual either. This sort of thing has really happened multiple times ever since the most recent war concluded. That war was in November 2020, I think, and there was a ceasefire that was signed. But again, ever since that's happened, there's been plenty of clashes and I guess, small-scale offensives, you know, changing of territory, that sort of thing. There's also Russian peacekeepers in the region that have really failed to keep the peace in any situation they're presented with, and that's apparently angering, um, you know, a lot of Armenians because they're particularly the, I guess you could say, defenders in these clashes. And looking forward, just overall, we're probably going to see more of the same for all three of those focuses. The killing of al-Zahiri probably won't have much of an effect on al-Qaeda because it looks like, at least from my perspective, their regional affiliates are fairly um, decentralized, I guess I could say. But, you know, they still haven't announced a successor to him. There is a guy that a lot of people speculate will take over. His name escapes me, but um, there may be a little bit of trouble with that because most people think he's actually in Iran under house arrest, and he's been there for quite some time. So don't know what will happen with al-Qaeda. Much probably won't change. Um, the Taliban, again, will not cut off the relationship with al-Qaeda either. Um, going forward to the Taliban's relations with their neighboring countries probably won't improve at all, probably won't make any um, progress on that front because they do have these insurgencies that they're absolutely failing to stamp out and they're probably only going to grow you know as the fighting season is going to be coming to an end here in the next few months these insurgent groups are probably going to ramp up their attacks and then for armenia and azerbaijan again this sort of thing has happened multiple times and it's really just going to be more of the same they won't see any peace and yeah just status quo i guess all right Balkan s2 our man in Oceania and the Pacific. So you've got a lot on your plate. You've had China. You've also had all of the Pacific. Um, where in there, in there do you see the big trends and the big things to watch for? 
Yeah, yeah, it is a it's a massive area, um, especially when you take into account um, Southeast Asia as well. And I try to touch on that here and there. But in terms of the big picture things um, and the things that I've been tracking, so uh, of course with China, we saw the uh, Pelosi visit and the uh, fallout from that with China uh, escalating tensions around uh, the Taiwan Strait and conducting the exercises, you know, which were almost certainly, um, I guess, scenario planning for uh, future attempts at uh, invading Taiwan. Uh, and there's plenty of resources online where you can read about that in detail. Um, in terms of China moving into the Pacific, so the biggest one there is uh, the Solomon Islands has just agreed to a $100 million loan uh, through Chinese uh, the Chinese banks to uh, build infrastructure, or um, Huawei infrastructure, all across uh, the country. So there's massive implications there. So first you look at uh, the debt trap um, kind of diplomacy that, that China uh, undertakes. So the Solomon Islands government definitely has a risk of falling into that um, predicament, uh, especially with the Solomon Islands being quite a poor country. Um, but at the same time, Sogavari being an autocratic um, leader who is more aligned to Beijing, I think he'll be more open to that. And having those kind of loans with Beijing kind of solidifies um, his relationship there. Um, and the second thing with Huawei infrastructure, there's almost certainly that backdoor uh, access through to the CCP. So uh, there's a real risk there that the CCP or uh, you know Chinese intelligence has access to uh, any data and information flowing through the Solomon Islands. And the key thing there is um, this could give them the ability to uh, monitor the public and uh, for indicators towards unrest in the uh, in the Solomon Islands. So if we look to the last uh, period of unrest that the country experienced, a lot of it was focused around um, unhappiness due to the, the government's relationship with China. And so a lot of Chinese businesses were targeted. So that's definitely, a, definitely one to watch there. Um, over the next 12 to 18 months, you know, we move into the cyclone season uh, down here in the Pacific, uh, where a lot of the countries such as like Vanuatu, Fiji, Samoa, they almost certainly experience some sort of uh, humanitarian aid and disaster relief uh, need. And with that, you get China, you get Australia, you get New Zealand, all competing for that soft, soft power influence uh, with providing aid. And over the years, China has become increasingly more um, more prevalent in that space. Um, and, you know, anecdotally, um, one of my experiences, we were taking aid over to one of the countries and, you know, half of it was Chinese aid. So, um, yeah, so that'd be a big one to watch in terms of that grey zone soft power influence. It's definitely the, uh, the cyclone season that generally runs from uh, November through to February. Um, that's kind of the big, the big picture things in terms of China. Uh, you would have seen a uh, second one with Russia, uh, their naval doctrine moving, well, kind of realigning more to the Pacific, kind of being on the top two to three things on their agenda items. So I expect to see more um, Russian presence moving south um, into the Pacific. Uh, I think the, late, the last push or the big, the big one at least was uh, military arms being sold to Fiji. Um, so that's that's another another key uh, vector to watch. Uh, that's pretty much it. There's so many rabbit holes I could go down, but uh, we can probably expand on things later.
Hey, Crow Tone Report, who's been covering Europe, a little China, a little bit of North Africa, a lot of Eurasia. What have you got for us? All right, all. So, you know, Russia's the main topic these last few weeks. The war in Ukraine is really dense, and we can go way into rabbit holes if we want to, but just kind of keep this short in the next two or three minutes. So the war in Ukraine is dragging on, and Russia has sustained allegedly forty to 45,000 casualties, and that's not, you know, that's dead. Like, they have 45,000 plus or minus dead. So two weeks ago, or two or three weeks ago, the Russian government announced all citizenship for all Ukrainians to go into Russia. So they're like, hey, you know, we started having refugees leave Ukraine to go into Russia. They can start now be considered citizens. And so after that, after these BDA comes out from the UN, from the United Kingdom, from the US, from Ukraine, and now Russia, the U Russian government announced that they are now offering thousands of dollars to Russian women who have 10 kids. And so I'm not saying that Russia just gained thousands of Ukrainian women, but they look to want to make an army to replenish their sustained casualties over these last few weeks. And so if we look into the Baltic states, that was destabilized recently, where Kaliningrad, which is kind of like that weird offshoot where it was the former Prussian uh, location in the Baltic area, but now it's this organic Russian entity <clears throat> surrounded by NATO states, was blockaded by... Lithuania and Poland, they weren't letting anyone come in, come out. And so Russia said, hey, you know, that's an infringement on our sovereignty. You can't sustain or put a blockade around our people. And so Poland said, all right, we're going to have like this bl bl this bless off. Hey, you look, your citizens can come plus or minus, but they have to get documented. So that was a big problem for Russia. And NATO was kind of like the closest to friction they've had at all since the conflict started. And then Russian aligned Serbia was getting very antsy recently where historically Kosovo broke away in 2008 and so several thousand Serbian nationals live within Kosovo and they were allowed to use their Serbian citizenship and their Serbian IDs and driver's license and license plates to move to and from Kosovo to Serbia but then Serbian gov or Kosovo government came out recently and said hey can't do that anymore we're our own country Serbia is not really us anymore so what we're going to do is say you can't do that so Serbia was all in arms you know, they were subjugating ethnic Serbians, almost just like what Putin did with Ukraine, saying, oh, they're subjugating pro-Russians in Crimea and Donbass, we need to protect them. So the Serbians mobilized their military to go into Kosovo, the UN and the NATO mission in that area said, hey, stand down, you're not doing this. But it's almost just like the Kremlin stepped in and said, can you really divert um, NATO's attention from Ukraine to the soft underbelly of Europe for a little bit so we can ramp up our military operations in Kyrgyzstan because there is an offensive in Kyrgyzstan at Donbass going on right now and unconfirmed reports of the Russians moving back into Sumy and uh, Kharkov. So there's a lot going on there. And then dipping into Africa a little bit, <clears throat> this is the area where it gets really complex because the Russians have been playing almost like a 4D chess move where they're not looking for tomorrow, they're looking for 10 years from now. So the Libyans just had their presidential election. It fell apart. But the U.S. citizen, so his name's Khalifa Haftar. He's in the East. He was set to win. He's the strongest guy in the area, but he's a U.S. citizen. So the U.S. really can't do anything to subject, or, uh, sanction him. But so he's very friendly with the Russians. So the Russians sent Wagner Group into Libya to secure all these oil fields. So essentially they control 50% of the oil that comes into Europe, which is strangling them at the moment. And so from there they have Nigeria. Uh, not Nigeria, um, 
what is it, Congo. So the Congo started having a revolution recently. We kind of saw it a little bit. It wasn't really talked about. And that is because the UN humanitarian mission down there was Ukrainians. So the only combat experience Ukrainians and their entire military were in the Congo. And so Wagner showed up recently and hosed all of them, just cleaned them out. So all of the humanitarian mission in the Congo is gone. So Wagner is now running around and seeing mild revolutions, mild uh, insurgencies, trying to get that whole part of the world rallied up. So at the moment, we have mercenary groups showing up in Africa. That's getting really hot. And the Russians are going like, hey, man, our gas is 50 cents a gallon. We could sustain any kind of issue. We don't really need to work with Europe. We just have to go to Southeast Asia or South America or Africa. So they're sustaining massive casualties, but they're trying to play the long game. We're going, hey, I understand that Germany doesn't want nuclear reactors and they use all of our gas. So they're trying to like kind of push the Europeans out of the way and essentially looking forward, the war is not ending anytime soon. I don't see Kyrgyzstan falling to the Ukrainians. It's I see it retaining uh, Russian occupation and the Donbass region along with Kyrgyzstan are now having a referendum to have essentially an indoctrination and incorporation into Russia and or a independent state. So it's almost like a buffer region between Ukraine and Russia. So there's a lot going on there right now. The Ukrainian people really don't like to see it, but they're subjugated. They don't have any weapons. And the Ukrainian military is pretty gassed at the moment. So looking forward, it's not looking good. All right. And again, last but certainly not least, Meridian News, who's done a lot of coverage on Africa, South Africa, Central Africa, and the Americas, including South Central America and, you know, a lot of the narco wars, etc. What do you have for us? Awesome. So Croton made it really easy to piggyback off uh, somewhat what he was saying about Africa. So the biggest themes right now, probably unsurprisingly, is energy is a huge one. Um, with everything going on in, in between Ukraine and Russia, um, most of Eastern Europe and the U.S. as well are kind of looking for alternative sources, uh, places to source energy from, I should say. So a big one, Nigeria. Um, one of Africa's top oil producers, we've seen uh, sort of as that demand grows <laughs> that they uh, don't necessarily have the infrastructure to actually support the levels of export that, well, uh, a lot of Western nations actually desire at this point. And one CEO, I think I wrote about this in, um, I don't know which, which piece it was, but revealed that uh, Nigeria was losing about $4 billion a year to oil theft, um, which we can kind of extrapolate out across Africa as well um, and see, for example, um, ISIS funded a lot of their activities back um, in 2015-ish era through basically stolen oil and selling it. Um, and we're seeing potentially that same thing um, in Africa and the Sahel region when you have massive global ter terrorism in the northern region of Nigeria and just Sahel in general. Um, same thing is happening in South America. So if we bring it over to the Americas here, um, Argentina is a really, really big one who's trying to kind of tap into basically greater energy reserves and reducing restrictions around a lot of what they've had in the past there. Um, that was limiting a lot of foreign investments. They're really making an effort to drive, to basically bring foreign investment in, build up that infrastructure so they can ex start exporting oil. Um, the other big piece that we've been seeing everywhere, including here in the U.S. where I live and I know a lot of us do live, is uh, basically economic impact of pretty much everything. So from that unprecedented pandemic to the war um, over in Russia and Ukraine, uh, 
global economies are feeling it. <laughs> it's probably the the best way to uh, say it. So you have Kenya that has a massive debt problem at the moment um, and essentially has been unable um, to they've, they've been borrowing a ton of money, but as inflation um, continues to rise over there, uh, it makes it really difficult to justify the expenses they've had in the past. And uh, now they have massive debts that they are unable to pay back um, and definitely causes problems in the region when it comes to the humanitarian crisis that are kind of all across Africa. Uh, when you can't pay back anything, any of the money that you borrowed for infrastructure, um, who comes in? It's countries usually like Russia um, through the through Wagner Group or other PMCs like China um, who are saying, hey, don't worry about that debt, but we're going to need something in return. Um, same thing. You see it uh, over in South America. And then if we even move to the U.S., there's a lot of fear of recession. Um, mass inflation has been talked about a lot. The Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates, uh, two consecutive hikes now of 0.75% or excuse me, 0.75 uh, basis points, which this is the first time that's happened in, I think it's two decades. Uh, so that's unprecedented and no way to tell whether or not an inflate or excuse me, a recession is actually coming. Uh, I certainly won't be the one to try to predict that, but August's jobs report just came out um, and it was about a hundred percent higher than was anticipated. So a lot of analysts were anticipating about 200,000 jobs uh, being added to the economy. About 500,000 were added. That is not a sign of a weak economy, uh, but it is a sign that the Federal Reserve will probably keep raising rates in order to quell inflation. Um, and when that happens, that means that they might end up inducing a recession to uh, control inflation. So between energy, between economic changes everywhere, uh, certainly an interesting time and uh, a lot going on around the world as as people scatter to try to get the infrastructure they need in place to whether it's export energy, import energy, or even just uh, manage the infrastructure that exists. So I'll give it back to you on that one. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, so I'm going to open up the floor. Um, the big thing I've been hearing, guys, out of hearing all of you talk is just a general rise in the level of conflict around the world, mostly focused on resource shortage. Now, my big question is, are we expecting to see Western powers stick to the flag and start to come up with solutions to these issues? Or are we going to start seeing people playing you know, in their own best interest. Germany making its own decisions to, you know, get away from Ukraine, for example, to ensure it has energy resources. So I, I think, think it's a big topic. Oh, go, go right ahead, Meridian. Oh, oh. I, uh, sorry, that was me. Uh, this is S2, uh, Ford. So I think, like, in the future, what we're going to start seeing, like, I'm 10 years, within the next 10 years in the future, 
we're going to start seeing a really big push into the Arctic, especially within the because of global warming and the uh, trade routes that are going to be essentially able to be pushed through uh, within Russia, Canada, Iceland, uh, Norway, Sweden, uh, and, yeah, Canada and the U.S. Uh, so there's a couple overlapping territories within the Arctic Circle and a lot of untapped natural gases. And I really don't see a huge issue between the U.S. and everybody else minus Russia. Uh, but because of this, it's just going to be another increased, uh, another flashpoint that could potentially lead to a conflict with Russia. Uh, let's say, like, even if this Ukrainian-Russia invasion wasn't even going on, this would be, like, a huge point of contention with Russia. And uh, just this access to natural gases would be able, would allow Russia to bypass the Suez Canal, the Bab el Mandeb Strait, to export their their oil. Well, we do know that the Russians have invested heavily into those icebreakers, and I want to say they might be mildly nuclear-powered, but I think they were ahead of the curve when, hey, ice is melting, we have all the tools. U.S. and Canada, they have a few, but we have all of them. So they started remanning those old former Soviet Arctic bases way up north, way where no one wants to live, but they've essentially been acclimatizing themselves in that region and essentially dipping back 50 years going like, yeah, we're going to own this area. So if there's natural resources up there, and there's no one there to conflict militarily or kinetically. I don't want to say it, but I think like the Russians might have the upper hand here. You're exactly right. And uh, one thing that we're going to start, well, that we've been seeing is China investing millions of dollars into uh, those Arctic refineries. Um, so when the ice starts to thaw and they could do year-round um, year-round exporting of oil, uh, Russia's already been seeing through the through BRICS. I bring this up a lot when we talk, but this is essentially going to be used to uh, bypass uh, international sanctions. So BRICS, the economic alliance between Brazil, Russia, uh, India, uh, China, and South Africa. So Russia has been exporting a lot of their oil to China and India. And so with the melting of uh, the ice caps in the Arctic Circle, they can just bypass the U.S., um, other uh, other NATO countries, and ship directly to China and India pretty much unheated other than by Japan and U.S. ships within the Pacific. So I do have something I want to throw out there where Russia, their big moneymaker, oil, gas, natural gas, that's their whole thing. And so if we look at, say, Africa, the Russians and the Chinese have been investing heavily into that continent, and it's almost like they've been quasi-colonizing it because they get all of their food from, say, Russia and Ukraine. No grains coming in from Russia and Ukraine anymore, and all these... North African and kind of Eastern African countries may face revolution and or massive unrest here soon so that we have a country called China who has plus or minus 15 to 20 months worth of food stored up and they have a base in Djibouti. So they are really getting cozy via the Belt and Road Initiative, these kind of things, into these impoverished African nations where A, there's U.S. bases. We can see it in Ethiopia where that was a very key strategic partner for the U.S., who is now going like, hey, U.S., you didn't really help us, so we're going to look to somebody else. So if we combined natural resources such as gas and then food, that's prime for a very impoverished country to go like, well, I guess I'm going to go for them because the Europeans and the U.S. really don't seem to want to help us out. Well, here's a question for you. Um, I think I sent this to Croatone and maybe Alcon. Estimates have been made about... Chinese aquifers in the Tibetan Plain, which is up near Mongolia, which feeds most of the water into China. And recently, a series of rivers in China that are sort of essential to the Chinese water supply, because the Chinese managed to poison about 50% of their water supply through pollution. So 
their water, viable water supply is actually quite fragile. It's gone dry. Now, do we think there's a possibility of China going into major drought and then having some really catastrophic problems in the near future? Absolutely. All kind of, you could probably talk on this more, but I absolutely see this happening where we have something called the Himalayas, where a lot of the Chinese have been trying to harness that natural like spring waters and thawing the ice up there into funneling their crops in central China and northern China to kind of like redirect coming through there. They also border India, who really don't want to seem to play that way. So that's where we see like these kinetic, non-kinetic, but it's like sticks and stones and swords and whatnot being thrown at each other. So the Indians and the Chinese aren't really on the same page because they're both fighting over the same water supply, but they're both under bricks, like S24 just said. So it's like that weird, fragile alliance where they're all on the same page, but they're all moving in different directions. So, I mean, China could, I mean, all kind, you could definitely elaborate on this, but yeah, I definitely see it. Yeah, um, that's, that's a, a really good point. And so I don't, I don't typically look at that part of the world. However, I'll, anecdotally, I'll tell you this, uh, that China um, owns uh, aquifers and springs here in New Zealand. And the government has essentially, since uh, 2017, given them permission to draw water from those springs and it allows them to bottle 1.5 billion litres per year. And that goes shipped straight back to China. So, um, you know, they're definitely making inroads uh, in this part of the the world uh, for water and those natural resources. And I, for one, see the natural resources uh, being a tension point for conflict um, in this part of the world. Uh, in, in the future, maybe not the near future, but definitely uh, looking long term. Why does New Zealand allow China to take its water? It's just business, bro. <laughs> Essentially, um, they're, they're, our, they're our biggest trading partner, mate, and we're, we're so isolated and we've become so reliant on them as a trading partner. They've got a lot of leverage. Um, and yeah, it just comes down to money. Um, it con- contributes to our GDP and uh, yeah, all that. That's that's wild and upsetting in a lot of ways. <laughs> mm. um, if I could, yeah. uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, if I could jump in real quick, just going back to um, you know, China and you know the possibility of them being in a drought. This is still kind of fresh in my mind because I was actually just looking at it yesterday. But they actually are in a drought, um, and apparently it's the worst they've had in sixty years, and they've only been keeping records for 60 years right so god knows how how bad it is comparative to you know past decades or even centuries but um you know there's a city in the middle of the country that recorded a temperature of 113 degrees fahrenheit the other day which is the highest ever recorded outside of Xinjiang and Xinjiang's you know a desert out in the middle of the east um and also the uh, province of Sichuan I think I'm pronouncing that right they get 80% of their power from hydroelectric dams, which, you know, means they're being pretty, they're being hit pretty hard by this drought. They just had all their factories ordered to cease operations for six out of seven days of the week. And then actually the same goes to the city of Chongqing. They had all their factories shut down for the same amount of time. So, um, yeah, they're definitely not doing great right now. I mean, I have to ask, given these problems, you know, and, and the human body dies after six days of no water, if it's healthy to begin with, 
you know, there are all kinds of factors that affect that, but there's no way to get it over the six day mark. Right. So most people will die after three or four days without any water of any kind. Is there a scenario with a moderate level of probability where the Chinese go black on water in at least parts of the country? You know, they, they run out of water in parts of the country and we start to see a refugee crisis. We start to see famine. We start to see sectarian violence inside China. So is that on see. the radar yet? What you can see with the Chinese is they had that one-child policy for so long, and so they're a very top-heavy age population-wise of just men. So one, there's no women. Two, they have all these old men, and they're sitting there in these big, empty cities, which I'm not going to go conspiracy theorists here, but they have all these giant cities which can be easily surrounded by weapons. They're like, all right, all these old dudes, I'm sorry to say it, but you know, you got to give it up. Needs of the many outweighs the needs of the few. So... I think they organized this specifically to kind of keep their population in check. Where I mean, we saw this in Beijing and Shanghai, where the COVID crisis happened, and they impoverished the entire cities, and they just put them there at gunpoint. They're like, "You're not leaving." What's to stop them from getting all these big cities out east or out west, where all these famines happening, and going like, "Yeah, you're not leaving." So it's like, even if there is a revolution, we won't hear about it for weeks after it happens because. One, their internet is very restricted into essentially who's going to care. I mean, until it reaches the east coast of China, West China is in a very bad position. I would definitely agree with Croton there. And I think another really valuable thing to consider is basically just how much people, uh, this is around the world, China, the US, uh, Europe, anywhere, appreciate stability <laughs> um so you've seen how china's basically handled covid basically locking people up holding them at gunpoint um exactly just to literally reiterate what croton said as long as that doesn't creep too far uh too far west as far as things are reach the coast there probably not a huge problem uh for china as uh even if it does mean causing massive famine and drought on other parts of the country as long as it's not hitting the population centers I would be shocked to see um, any type of unrest, to be honest. All right. Um, now, before we move on from Asia, is there anything that anyone has to say about the situation with Taiwan or the situation elsewhere with terror groups in, Centr in uh, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, the Philippines, etc.? Before you move on to about Taiwan and or the Philippines, but I do want to talk about Afghanistan for a second because we talked about it before in the last live stream on Instagram, but Afghanistan now has this hub of battle-hardened Taliban fighters with U.S. equipment. And so it's not a far stretch to say that the Hindu Kush borders the Uyghur population who are subjugated. So the Chinese are heavily monitoring that region going, yeah, we understand that we have millions of people in cages that we're trying to like get rid of the idea that they're Muslim. And we have these radicals across the street who just beat three empires in a row. So I feel like they are really monitoring that situation to number one, go, hey, there's no way in hell the Taliban's coming in here. And B, going back to what we just said, they're going to subjugate that population so goddamn hard. There, there's no word going to come out of there because there's already so scarce information coming out of those internment camps already. But if there's an insurgency brewing, 
And I mean, if I was a psyops officer in the U.S. military, I would definitely want to start funding the Taliban. But I mean, I don't. China's probably onto that. So that's definitely a flashpoint, not just for China, but all of Central Asia. Just to add into the whole China Afghanistan bit, uh, what a lot of people seem to uh, overlook is, uh, or at least they're just they just don't know about, is that China owns the mineral rights to all of Afghanistan, and I, you know, with lithium being such a big deal now. The uh, I guarantee you, if there is like a Afghanistan does become some sort of hotbed for creating terror groups to project their power into the rest of the stands, you know, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and apparently my theory is that China would essentially tell the Taliban, "Hey, keep your hands off the Uyghurs, and we're going to keep doing business with you for your uh, minerals, essentially, so we can, you know, make each other rich in the process." But that's just that's just my theory on it. On that point, though, isn't there an even possibility that the Taliban say, oh, we nationalized our mineral resources. China never owned it. They're not allowed to own it. And we're going to do business with the rest of the world that dislikes China. There was rumors that as soon as the U.S. left last August, that A, the Russians showed up and started helping out everybody. And B, the Chinese moved in and started liquidating a lot of those troublesome uh, Afghan insurgents. To say, like, you are not doing this again. No, you are listening to us. And it was very, you know, this is very hush-hush. Stuff I've just seen across, like, Telegram and whatnot. But it was like, hey, China stepped in. Like, you better cut your shit because we are not going through this. Hey, can China sustain a conflict or a, a war period? No. B, can they, can they weather an insurgency across the border dipping into them? No. So I think it was like a real quick show of force. Rumors were that the Russians were in Kabul. And the Chinese showed up and they're like, let's tr like try to play nice because, like Sue Ford just said, they have the mineral rights. They've had them for 10 years. We were there in, you know, Bagram in 2012 and they sold all of the rights to China and all the U.S. was like, what the hell? But I think China is really trying to play like very political right now. And that's not to say that they're not doing that in Africa. And that's a completely different topic. Well, it's a topic we're about to touch. So where do we see Africa going, guys? Um, again, resource shortage is the big story here. Uh, sort of, we're back to the third world c conflict from the Cold War, which has just come back in style, apparently. So, what do we see, sort of, on the forecast? For I'm sorry, I feel like I'm Africa. talking way too much, but Africa is definitely getting colonized again, and it's not because no one's noticing; it's because no one really wants to address it. Where, let's say, North Africa, especially Egypt, gets. 75% of their food imports from Russia and Ukraine, and they haven't for the last, I don't know, six months. And so now they're down to weeks worth of food reserves. And guess where all the trade goes through? The Suez Canal. The British don't own that anymore. It's Egypt. So that's that destabilization can get really messy really fast. And then if we're looking at, say, like the Russians in Western Africa and Mali and whatnot picking up after the French, because over there, the French never really left. But no one really likes the French. So they're kind of like dipping into that Russian influence. And then through Djibouti, the Chinese are influencing all of Eastern Africa. So it's like they're trying to meet in the middle and Congo is the flashpoint. So I'm not going to say that they're getting colonized, but they are. And so I've talked to Africans who have hit me up on my Instagram saying like, yeah, the Chinese are here and they're not nice. So and again, I feel like I'm talking way too much here. I want to like step back. But yeah. I mean, on that same vein. So um, with Wagner Group and Mali, they've had huge issues with um of course a lot of most of africa i would say is open to giving them a chance as sort of uh 
as Russians come in, uh, because a lot of them felt sort of betrayed by whether it's the British or the U.S. or the French. Um, they feel like they spent a long time there and never actually accomplished uh, what they set out to do or uh, helped out in the way that they promised the locals they would. Wagner, uh, specifically, was recently involved, I think this was about two or three months ago, in a situation where they killed uh, between two and 400 civilians in Mali. Uh, so even as as they're trying to kind of gain influence in the region, you still have these huge, uh, I, I guess you'd call them setbacks for uh, for the organization as they're trying to strengthen uh, the ties with, with Russia in the region. So it's going to be really interesting to see sort of basically who wins that, that culture war out there. Is it going to be China? Is it going to be Africa? Is it going to be a different player that we don't even know? Or is Africa going to decide to basically reject all of these these nations and uh, revert back to a more local rule. So I think it's going to be a super interesting region as far as things go. Well, I mean, if we look at Nigeria, that's like, what, the second or third largest economy in Africa, one of the largest mm-hmm. populations in the world, and their civilians wave Russian flags. They love Russia. They don't like England. They don't like France. They like Russia. And so if Mali's, you know, is invited the Wagner group in, to essentially do the dirty work. And I'm not talking cleaning out a few insurgents. I'm talking child soldiers. Those guys are cleaning them up. And that's what the French were like, essentially unable to do. Like, no right-minded individual wants to go into a village and take out child soldiers. Wagner's like, how much money? Yeah, sure. So they're just out there doing what they're paid to do. And so they're going, hey, Western Africa, yeah, checks out. Remember Congo in 1960? Yeah, that was a mess. That was also child soldiers. So uh, can we have you guys come down here? Ukraine's there, you say. Interesting. Yeah, I understand you don't like them. So can you hose them really quick and uh, help us out? So I think, yeah, like I said earlier, Russia's definitely playing that 5D chess where, like, yeah, they're fighting kinetic war in Europe. It's the largest war since World War II in Europe. But also Africa's, like I said, it's getting colonized. No one wants to talk about it because that word colonization is so... Uh, fragile and so tense that no one really wants to address it. But hey, man, I'm not saying that Chinese colonies are popping up in Africa, but they are. So, real quick, we're going to slip over to Southeast Asia, uh, South America, and uh, Central America because so you know we have to close off this call pretty soon. Um, but you know the big bullets, at least for me, in South and Central America is. The Mexican government finally got into an actual, no kidding, shooting war with a drug cartel using its army, and they lost. Um, Mexican forces went into the city of Tijuana last week with armored vehicles and aircraft, and then left the city in the hands of a drug cartel. Um, At what point, guys, are we going to just start admitting that Mexico is a failed state? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone that's been paying attention to that has realized that for quite some time, you know, um, the cartels are everywhere, certainly not new to Tijuana, right? The cartel has been in Tijuana for decades, but they haven't really been as brazen as they were last week because they haven't needed to be, you know, but when they see that their prominent Sicarios are getting locked up, and they kind of, you know, flail their hands around and say, you better release these guys or we're going to start causing problems and they don't get released. Well, yeah, they're going to be more brazen. And Tijuana, you know, it's a tourist attraction. It's right there on the border. Get a lot of attention. There's music festivals. There's a ton of stuff going on. So if you want to 
make waves as a cartel, then that's where you take action. That's where you get your attention. And we've already touched on Argentina, Venezuela, the BRICS problems. Um, I did want to bring up, there was an incident with the Chilean Navy and the Chinese and a bunch of Chinese fishermen, which turned out to be a Chinese spy boat, where the Chilean Navy chased off and then captured and arrested a bunch of Chinese intelligence officers on a fishing boat um, and haven't given them back yet. So I think there's a l- starting to be, this is my personal read. I think there's starting to be a little bit of a split narrative on China, at least in South America. Again, I don't know how true that is because we have Venezuela, Argentina, who are heavily interested in cooperation. Brazil, which is heavily interested in cooperation with China. What are our thoughts on to, uh, the Southern Americas? I guess I don't, I don't know too much about it myself. If I had to get, take a guess, I'd say most countries in Latin America in general are probably undecided on whether they want to, I don't even want to say side with, but just tolerate the U.S. or China more, right? Argentina, Venezuela definitely want China. I think Chile, maybe they're leaning towards U.S. a little bit, but the majority of the other countries in the region are probably undecided. And the U.S. is going to have to take action on that soon, right? We have a bad reputation in the region, and we really need to repair that before China takes advantage of our shit reputation. We already know that Russia sent Wagner Group and some of their military advisors to Venezuela within the last few years to like help advise and insist their uh, government forces. What's to say China won't show up there with Belt and Road Initiative going, I'll help rebuild your airports, I'll help rebuild your shipyards, it's not it's the same thing in Africa. It's no one really talks about South America because no one essentially really cares. So that's America's backyard. They're always like nothing really happens down there. But yeah, Russia's been there for a long time. They're like Brazil and Argentina are very pro East. They are they're kind of like that thorn that you're like, it's not going to be a problem, but it is today. So and they are in bricks and Argentina just said they wanted to join. So, yeah, there's a lot going on down there that no one wants to talk about. Yeah, I mean, as far as Belt and Road goes, there's already talks, nothing concrete that I've seen, but definitely talks of initiatives going on in Venezuela and Brazil in particular, right? And that just kind of underscores the fact that the U.S. really needs to get the ball rolling on improving our relationship in Latin America before China, honestly, just steamrolls us in the region. So we'll be in analysis for a second. What would what's stopping China from moving into Belize? That's just one step closer to the U.S. and or Cuba. Come on. I would expect an actual diplomatic U.S. response based on, you know, a doctrine the U.S. has had. You know, we have a we do have a record of responding to overt movement. You know, the last time someone overtly moved into the Americas, there was an almost nuclear war over it. So I think the Chinese prefer a slower approach. Do you know what I mean? Would you call that winning hearts and minds? Perhaps. Um, so we're going to close out here real quick. Go around the room. Um, what do you got in one sentence? What do you guys see the next big thing being? So we'll start with S2 and then just go around the room. 
next biggest thing in the Middle East, possible Iraqi civil war, Turkey invading eventually, and possibly uh, renewed hostilities with Israel and Lebanon if they can't create an agreement on the maritime claim. What's uh what's going on in Iraq is obviously pretty um it's something to keep your attention on, but I guess I'll I'll choose something else. Ukraine obviously going to keep attention on that. All these attacks that are going on in Crimea, particularly in tourist areas, are definitely something to grab your attention, I guess. And Ukraine is going to keep making moves in Crimea, keep trying to drive out these tourists and scare these Russian officials and yeah, that's just gonna, where they're going to go from here. Olka? Yep. Hey, uh, so in terms of uh, China-Taiwan, um, that's kind of a given. The next big thing, ISS, um, would be a flashpoint there, not uh, due to direct uh, conflict, but as a result of a miscalculation. Um between the Chinese Navy or Air Force and a Western partner or the Taiwanese. Um, and then looking to the Pacific would most likely be Chinese moving in and uh, getting involved with those large infra- infrastructure projects uh, in the poorer nations. So in terms of Europe, I don't see anything kinetic going on in the Baltics I or Balkans. I just see that, you know, Serbia is going to rattle their sword like they always do. They're going to back down. Uh, they're outgunned and outnumbered. They may have the numbers to Kosovo, but they don't have, you know, the logistical logistical means to support themselves because Russia is so far away. In Ukraine, that war is not stopping anytime soon. I do not see Ukraine retaining Crimea, but hey, that's just me. Also in the Baltics, nothing's going on. And then looking into Africa, uh, Congo, look out for that because that's about to explode. And last but certainly not, not least, Mr. Meridian. It just feels good to hear you say it. But um, <laughs> as far as everything goes, I think um, in Africa and, and South America as a whole, um, basically how the West reacts to energy needs as the war with Russia and uh, between Russia and Ukraine persists. Um, I'm curious to see how consumers and governments react basically across the West as prices continue to go up and it becomes more and more difficult to acquire energy, uh, whether it be coal, gas, or oil. Um, another thing in Africa that I actually think is going to be really interesting to watch is going to be uh, the DRC, as mentioned by Croatone, but also um, Ethiopia. Uh, between the civil conflict there and everything going on between neighboring countries like Somalia and recent attacks through by Al-Shabaab in the region, as more civil unrest um, happens basically across the country. Um, what bleeds over from the Sahel region, which don't know if I mentioned this, but most terrorism deaths in the world last year, 48%, I believe. So just curious to see how stable Africa remains or how unstable it gets. All right. So we're going to close out here. Guys, thank you for being on the call. Appreciate your time. Appreciate everything you do. Uh, if you're listening to this, the Lethal Minds Journal, Bolton from the Borderlands are all under Lethal Minds. We partnered with these guys. They're some of the best at what they do. Um, you can find all kind of S2, S2 Forward, Meridian News, Crow Tone Report, Analyze Educate on Instagram. 
They all have additional projects they work on. Proton Report is a Proton podcast. Alcon's got a podcast and an open source. S2's got an open source. Analyze Educate does a podcast. Meridian publishes open source as well. Um, your support for both for the Borderlands goes directly towards funding these guys. The money either goes to them or to making what we put out to you better. Um, so please support us any way you can. We're on Patreon. You can support us on Substack. Guys, you got anything you want to say to the people? Uh, say your prayers and eat your Wheaties. Thanks for having us. It was a blast. Yeah, thanks everyone for the support. Really appreciate it. Yeah, cheers everyone. Uh, it is a pleasure to write for you all that who subscribe and um, look forward to the next issue. Yeah, man, just having a blast. Good to be here.